I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 21. We'll be taking a look at the laws at the end of Exodus 21 and on into Exodus chapter 22. To prepare us for that, I just want to uh, try to help us see how pertinent these laws are, even unto this day. At least the principles that are addressed here and the situations that are addressed are and were for Israel everyday matters. Uh, it's dealing with the matters of uh, property and damage and loss and theft. And those are things that continue on unto today. And so we wonder to some degree, I think in our lives, of you know, how does God think about some of these everyday details of our lives? What does he care? How does he think? And we want to know, I hope, how he thinks about any part of our life. And this gets into some level of detail in our life. For example, does God care when you borrow your neighbor's tool, break it, and don't get him a new one? Or what if a friend of yours asks you to watch his house while he is gone, and while they are gone, their pet dies? What should you do? Buy one that looks exactly the same before they get home and replace it? Or, more seriously, their heirloom jewelry is stolen while you're house-sitting, and you're the only one who had access to their house. What should happen then? Or, you hear the rattling of the door or the smash of a window in the middle of the night. Does God care how you respond? What if it is the middle of the day and someone is found rummaging around your garage and holding your toolbox, clearly intent on stealing it? What should you do then? Does God care? What if a company that you invest in is discovered to be running a Ponzi scheme and you're Year's investment for retirement is shot when their stock plummets. Who's liable? What should be done? Does God care? What should happen if a thief is stolen from you? Does God care? The purpose of this section of the law is to address these types of situations. So let's read Exodus chapter 21, verses 33 and on to Chapter 22, let's see what God has to say. When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another's so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox and the dead beast shall be his. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over, 
or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing of which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe, and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath, and he shall not make restitution. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. If a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. Let's bow together and ask the Lord to bless our study of his word. Father, with our Bibles before us and your word having been read to us, we pray now that you give us understanding, that you would be honored as we look at your scripture. And help us, Father, to be ready to receive what you have for us and apply it to our lives as would honor you. And ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This portion of the law that was given to ancient Israel was given to them to govern exactly the types of scenarios that came up. And these were scenarios that would come up and did come up through their history. And they needed some direction about how they were to be handled when they happened. We find, however, these laws being so rooted in the ancient culture that they were in are also so generalizable that we need experience needs for the same exact kind of judicious laws to govern the way that we conduct ourselves when these things come up. More than that even, these laws reflect the standards of God's justice and his righteousness. And you bring these, realm, these laws out of the realm of just the mere legal and judicial and really you bring them to the realm of the moral to show that the way that we conduct ourselves in situations like this is not just to adhere to some sort of external law, but really to reflect what's in our heart, what's important to us, what we value, what's right, what's wrong, and whether our lives are given over to the Lord. And so as we look at these laws in this section of Exodus, we'll break this down into basically three headings for us to follow along. And first, we'll see God's basic standards regarding property, loss, damage, and theft. 
to see what, what are God's standards in regard to these situations? What does he expect regarding property loss, damage, and theft? And then, secondly, we'll see the expectation that God has for those who are involved or responsible for property loss, damage, or theft. And then, third and finally, we'll let these laws, as we always need to do when we come to the law, let these laws point us the greatness of Jesus Christ who both fulfilled the law and caused his people to follow after him. So first, let's kind of unpack this from the angle of seeing what God's standards are, what his basic standards are regarding property loss, damage, and theft. And I call these his basic standards because I hope it will be revealed Further, when we come to what Jesus says, that he, in a sense, elevates, heightens, and deepens our understanding of what God expects of us. And so these laws, I think, as we go through them, we'll see they're just kind of the, the ground level, the entry level into our conduct in regard to these scenarios. It's, it's kind of just elementary to tell somebody, don't steal. Or we even tell our kids, if you break your friend's toy, we need to do something about that. That's, that's not like graduate level work right there. This is not social rocket science. This is essentially, don't steal, be responsible uh, not to have things like open pits that people can fall into, protect anything or anyone who gives you something to protect, be responsible with anything you borrow. That's about it. That's what it's saying. Pretty basic. And so these are God's basic standards regarding property loss, damage, and theft. And although they're basic, it's still important for us to think about them and consider them. Because God's people ought to be the kind of people where we remove any kind of hindrances from the world thinking that we don't live in agreement with God's ways. So it ought to be kind of a given for us that we put ourselves under these basic statutes. And as we look at this, we can also come away with the perspective of like the psalmist who says, oh, how I love your law. Because we see how good God's ways are, how fair they are, how judicious they are, these laws can be broken down into two general scenarios. And we'll, we'll personalize them as we go along, try to put ourselves into the shoes of those who would have heard these laws and lived in this culture. Kind of imagine yourself as an ancient Israelite to some degree. And the way that these laws are categorized is, one, if you, are, uh, if you own or encounter a dangerous piece of property, and those covers the laws of, that we heard about the open pit or about the, uh, the bull that kills another bull. Uh, the second category is if you experience a dangerous disregard for other people's property, and that could be through theft or the trampling and burning of crops or negligent protection of property or negligent borrowing of property. And so as we look at God's basic standards, we'll first see this um, 
category of owning a dangerous piece of property. And it's the scenario of a, an open pit. This would have been a cistern that would have been used to collect uh, water to be used in the dry seasons. And it says in verse 33 of chapter 21, when a man opens a pit or when a man digs a pit, it does not cover it. So this could be a pit that already exists and they take the cover off, or it could be a, uh, a new pit that they've dug and they've not created any cover for it. Even on our property, we have two, two wells. We have one well that we currently draw water from, and the other one is, a, is an old well that used to be used for the property. And covering the old well, it's on a little mound, and there is this huge stone slab that covers it. And if we ever removed that stone slab and unveiled this pit that was in our yard that's more than a foot in diameter, the very first thing that my kids would want to do is grab some rope and a flashlight and do some exploring. And we just, as parents, know pits and children aren't good. And so you have to be careful with them. And you hear the stories that occasionally come up of those uh, horrible scenarios where a child falls down a well and it takes a, a whole lot of effort and planning to try to figure out how to get this child safely out of the well and it gains international attention. And so this is just an, almost, in a way, a common sense law. If you have a pit into which animals or anything else could fall into and die as a result of it. Cover it up. A pit should be covered. In this text, it's left uncovered, and an animal falls in and dies. This isn't even speaking about a person who falls in and is trapped or dies. That would fall under the manslaughter laws that are earlier in chapter 21. The basic point is, if you have on your property or something you own, something that is dangerous and cause harm to other if not properly secured or protected, then you need to watch out and be careful with it so that nobody gets harmed. A pit should be covered. It's the first common sense scenario. Second, there's this feisty ox that shows up. There's these two oxen that are together and one but another, and the other one dies. Well, what do you do in that situation? It's, well, it's, in this case, it's an unexpected accident. Uh, you didn't see it coming, didn't intend for it coming, there's no malice in it, there's really even no negligence in it. It's the first time it's ever happened. And we know those things happen. There's, you have an animal and it just uh, it goes off the rails out of nowhere. Well, in that case, the the owner of the one bull and the owner of the second bull are to sell the still living bull and, um, and divide the profits from that and then take the dead bull and divide the hide from it. They couldn't eat it because it died of natural causes which Deuteronomy forbidden them from eating. And so they kind of share the expense of this. But there's another situation that's given here that if the ox was accustomed to gore in the past and the owner hasn't kept it in, then he's the one who is liable. He needs to pay now for the dead ox, the whole thing. He gets the hide, but he has to pay the other owner the full recompense of that ox. Again, these are basic points. It's basically 
Be responsible with your property. If your ox is known to gore, you need to do something about that. If you have an open pit, you need to cover it up. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 8 says, When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. Basically, build a fence around your roof. Or if you build a balcony, put a railing up. One author puts it this way, take responsibility for what is yours. Keep Fido fenced in or on a leash and put a fence around your swimming pool. Be careful with your property. It makes sense, doesn't it? Don't leave a chainsaw that is ready to go as soon as you pull the trigger out in your front yard for a child to stumble around and pull the trigger and see what happens. Exercise prudence. And so we see God's basic standards regarding property you own that could potentially be dangerous. Be responsible for it. Take responsibility for it. The second scenario that helps us see God's basic standards is a dangerous disregard for other people's property. This is elaborated on a number of, in a number of ways. First of all, is through theft. That's in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 22. Theft is the greatest disregard you can have for another person's property. It's just taking it when it's not yours. It's basically saying, I don't care if you claim ownership to this. I'm going to take it for my own selfish means. And it should be obvious. Don't steal. Don't disregard another person's property and another person so much that you just take what is theirs. The, the consequences of the theft are detailed, and it's basically restitution, and we'll talk more about that in a bit. But there's this kind of parenthetical statement here that's inserted that acknowledges, yeah, theft is a horrible crime. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you can kill the person who's stealing from you. The life of the thief is still valuable and is not forfeit. And so it inserts this scenario here, which is if it's at night and there's somebody who is literally digging through your wall, mud bricks that would be dug through, uh, it says breaking in, it could be digging through the wall of your fence to bring cattle out, or maybe it could be coming into your own home. And it's at night, and you can't see what's happening. You don't know what the intent is of the person doing this. You don't know what weapons they have. You don't have flashlights you can immediately turn on in those days. There are no street lights. You can't tell. And you fear for the worst, and you strike the person, and they die. And basically it says that self-defense in that situation is legitimate. There's no blood guilt for you. But if it's the middle of the day and you see somebody trying to take your animals out of your field, you know them, you may even recognize them because it's a small community and you know everybody, but you can't go and just start wailing on them and kill them because they're taking your donkey. It's not allowed. You will have blood guilt. The point is that theft does not rise to the level of severity of a crime as does murder. Their life is not forfeit. But the main point in this passage is theft is wrong. It's God's standard. And it's assault against the reality that God stewards to people according to his sovereign plan 
and we must not transgress those boundaries for our own selfish gain at the expense of loss to others. Don't steal. We know that. It's the commandment. But this goes on beyond just mere theft. There's more to consider than just flat-out theft. We must not think that's the only kind of disregard we can have for other people's property. In verse 5, it begins to describe this situation where you go out into a vineyard or a field with your cattle, and it's not yours, and you let your cattle start grazing. They, or they trample the crops. Well, guess what? You can't do that. It's not right. You're going to now be liable for what damage you have caused or your cattle has caused. Uh, or if you start a fire to clear your field, and at the edge of the field there are uh, thorns that kind of distinguish one field from another, and you haven't been prudent in preparing uh, necessary restraints on that fire, and that fire begins to escape your field and it goes into another uh, neighbor's field and it burns their uh, grain or their vineyards. Guess who's lying? You are. You are. Many of you uh, know this. Uh, right after we bought our house, we were in our house working over a year ago, and we hear this loud crash outside. Of our, of our house. And we go out to take a look, and lo and behold, there's an oil truck tipped over in our yard, gushing out gallons and gallons of oil. Um, the, everybody in the world came to see this, and they, uh, they flip the truck over eventually, and they remove it. And we're really thankful that the oil company didn't say, well, tough luck, sorry, just an accident, these things happen. Best wishes. See you next year. Hope you keep buying our oil. They didn't do that. They took responsibility for it. And excavators were in our yard the next day, digging up tons and tons of soil to clean everything up. And I'm thankful that the company took responsibility for the care of the damages due to their accident. And the point is that if you, either by intent or by neglect, damage someone else's property, that's not insignificant. God cares about that. There's another scenario that comes up, and that's the negligent protection of property. And that comes up in verse 7. Before there were banks and security cameras and safes, there were neighbors. And if you had something precious that you needed to be protected while you went away on a trip, for example, you might give it to your neighbor to take care of. It says in verse 7, if a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep it safe. It's a neighborly service to be offered. And so you bring your goods over to your neighbor, they take care of it, they say they will, and you go away. And guess what happens while you're away? It's stolen. Or one of your animals that you've asked them to take care of dies or is injured or is driven away and no one saw it happen. Happen. Now, that might bring up some thoughts in your mind when you come back to find that your stuff has been stolen. Consider this. You go to your friend, you've got $10,000 in cash that you need to keep safe 
for some reason. You need to go away and say, hey, you know, I'm going away for a few days. Would you just keep this safe for me? I can't bring it with me. I don't want to put it in a bank. I just want it taken care of. Would you just protect it? I'll be back in a few days. And your friend says, yeah, I'd be happy to do that. I'll keep it safe. You go on your trip and you come back. And you go to your friend and say, hey, you know, how'd it go? And uh, your friend says, well, you know, it's an amazing thing happened while you were gone. I, I had your $10,000 and I, I immediately put it right next to my $10,000 that I keep under my mattress. And I stored it there and my $10,000 has always been safe. It's always been okay. But while you were away, somebody broke into my house. And the strangest thing is, they took your $10,000 and not mine. Strangest thing in the world, but you know what they say? Truth is stranger than fiction. And to add to the frustration, we just can't find the thief. I'm sorry that you lost all that money. Tough luck. That might sound a little fishy, doesn't it? But what do you do? Or it could be that you bring your animals over and you say, I gotta go away, you take care of my animals, watch them, keep them safe, I'll be back in a few days. You go on your trip, you come back, you say, um, thank you so much for watching my 10 sheep. That was a huge blessing to me, so grateful for you doing that. And he says, well, I'm happy to do it. All eight of your sheep are right over there. <laughs> you say, well, I'm glad to see them, but I gave you 10. And he says, no, you gave me eight. And I say, well, let's go take a look. And you go and you look and you say, yeah, those are my eight. And those two over there, those are mine as well. And your friend says, no, I've had those for years. I don't know what you're talking about. And there's this breach of trust that happens. What do you do? How is that decided? And those things still go on today. And basically what they were to do in those moments was they were to go before God and swear an oath about what has happened. In the name of Yahweh, they would declare their innocence in this matter. And when it says they were to go to be God, before God, sometimes that meant that they would go to a place that God has designated, with people God has designated, either elders or priests or judges to whom they would bring their case and they would have the responsibility to try to determine what is going on between these two people. And it's like the situation of Solomon when those two women are fighting over whose child is this? And they go to Solomon and they both claim this is my child and Solomon and the wisdom of God has to discern between the two testimonies of these women to decide who is telling the truth and who is lying. And Solomon has to act and make that decision and that determination. And basically both parties agree that whatever the determ determination is, they will abide by it. That's the way it was to work. But in another case, if it was just stolen and there's only one party to really attest to this, the, the person who is at loss has to accept the testimony of the person who is swearing under oath that they didn't take property of their neighbor. And you might think, well, that's not, that's not fair. Well, here's the underlying reality to it all. 
Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And if you make an oath before the Lord about what you did with somebody else's property and you are lying, you will not have to face the wrath of your neighbor, you will have to face the wrath of God. That's the way that this was to work. There's another scenario which was the negligent borrowing of property. This is where you borrow an animal maybe for plowing or for breeding or some other task, and while you borrow it, it gets injured or dies. And it says if the owner was there, then there's nothing to be done. He would have seen it all and could have protected the animal himself, but it didn't, so there's no penalty there. But if he's not there, then the man, man who borrowed it must pay if there's any damage. Or if he basically rented the animal, as we might rent equipment and something happens, then basically the price of the rental includes any potential damages, and so the one who rented has no liability. Let me give you an illustration of this, and again, this comes from recent experience in our own home ownership. And I bring this up simply to say that these events are all so real to life events that it didn't take me more than five seconds to think of scenarios that could match similar situations here. After we bought our house, there's a lot of work to be done, and someone graciously loaned us a number of tools to do some work. And the tools that were loaned to us were very kindly and thoroughly explained about how to use them, and it included a flooring nailer and an air compressor. Now, if while the owner was there having explained how to use all this, I said to him, you know, I like irony, and so I'd love to see what happens when I use the flooring nailer on the air compressor. And this is hypothetical. Imagine he says, you know what? I've always wanted to know that myself. And so go ahead, give it a whirl. And if we survive the blast, I'm not liable because the owner was right there, kind of giving credibility to everything that was done. However, if he wasn't there and I decided just to give that a try after he was gone, I am liable now to replace his equipment because it's obviously my negligence. And even if he was there, it'd probably be appropriate for me to replace the equipment anyway. But if I rented it, and assuming I didn't do something as foolish as that, but it breaks during the normal course of use and in compliance with the way it was agreed upon for it to be used, then the one who is renting that equipment should calculate into his cost for which he hires it out potential damages that can come. It's his business. And so the one who rented it isn't responsible for it. It's the one whose business it is who needs to calculate those hazards. I hope that you see some of the overlay here into our present day from these laws. They compel you to be reasonable in your treatment of other people's property, respectful and responsible, and careful about your own property as well. But these are not extraordinary expectations. Again, these are relatively basic. And so I want to come to the next part, second part here, which is to see the expectation that God has 
for those who are involved or are responsible for property loss, damage, or theft. You've kind of seen the standard, but now what happens if you, you fail in that standard, and what do you need to do? And you could say, well, I'm just going to try to avoid stealing anything or breaking anybody's tool if I borrow it or letting my uh, animals graze on somebody else's yard or my dog dig up the prized petunias of my neighbor. I'm just going to avoid all of that and not have this happen. But I think very quickly, if you're paying attention to these circumstances, we've all in some way violated these things at some time in our life. More than that, some of these things are unintentional and some are intentional. Some, despite how much you try, things are going to happen. But things that are, happen that are intentional, there is a greater response to, and demand to fix what is wrong. But even for accidental things, there are right ways to proceed, and these reflect God's standards of justice. The key word throughout this is that word restitution. One author writes that restitution is at the heart of every penalty for theft. The word is shalom, which is very close to the word shalom, meaning peace. And one translator translates it this way, to make whole. Another author says this, restitution involves both compensation and retribution. The man robbed is compensated for his loss, and then the thief is punished by having to pay double or more. He must forfeit exactly what he sought to gain. Now sometimes there's just loss and there's no compensation involved, like the case of one ox butting another ox to death. And it's understood there's no control over that. There's nothing you can do. And so you just make the best of it. You sell the living ox. You split the funds. You split the hide of the dead ox. And it's just the way it is. There's nothing more to be done. Or if you're caring for the goods of one of your neighbors and in sincerity, something is really stolen and you did all that you could to prevent that loss. Well, there's nothing more that can be done. Nothing to do there. Or in verse 13, if you're caring for someone else's animal and a wild animal comes and takes it, and then if you can provide the carcass and prove that's what's happened, then it's out of your control and there's just loss. This is just the course of nature. It happens. Or if you let someone borrow your things and you're with them while they use it, it breaks due to no fault of their own, then it's just as likely to have broken with you using it, so there's nothing to be done. It's just loss. But then there's this category of unintentional negligence, and these are situations when you should have known better. It wasn't that you meant for something bad to happen, but it did, and you need to rectify it. Like if your ox has gored another animal before, then you, you suffer the loss, and you have to repay the full price of the animal that was gored. Or if you start a fire that destroys your neighbor's field, and you should have taken those precautions to prevent its spread, well then, you have to make compensation. And not just like get together some leftover grain that you have. You're to give them the best of what you have to make it right. Or if your animals graze and trample, same thing. Or if you're responsible for an animal and it's stolen and you know who stole it and you did nothing about it, then you have to make restitution for that. And so there's this category of kind of unintentional negligence, 
or you should make things right. Not the level of theft, but still you need to go and make things right with the one who suffered the loss. But the worst kind is that intentional disregard for property. Like with theft, when you have already taken the person's animal and you kill it or you sell it, and you show that your whole intent all along is to completely disregard the other person and only benefit yourself. Well, then it says that the law is that you need to pay five times the price of an ox for your theft to the one from whom you stole it, or four times for a sheep, which is slightly less valuable. If it was still alive, then you can return the animal, but you still have to pay double. It still hurts. These were mandatory, required payments for negligence or for intentional criminal activity. It was meant to give back to the one wronged. It was meant to penalize the criminal activity. And it's just and right for it to be commensurate with the harm that was done. We see the wisdom of God in that. When there is intentional or negligent activity that harms someone else in God's justice system, it indicates that there should be fair compensation to the one who experienced the loss due to no fault his own. And I think that we as believers should take this to heart. I think if I cause harm to someone else, if I back into somebody's car, I shouldn't drive off and ignore it. I should leave a note, my number, to make it right. I should be responsible for my actions and for what I have done. I should make it right. If you break your neighbor's tool, buy him a new one. But we can't just stay here. This is law. And while it reveals the righteousness of God and the judicious nature of our God, we need to move on to see the greatness of Jesus regarding these topics. Because we are not called to live under the condemnation of the law, although it can show us patterns of living that we should strive for. We all realize that we fail, and we need to come to something greater, something bigger, and even come to an ethic that is bigger, a morality that is bigger than just give back something you broke and make it right. There's something bigger and better than that. And you can see this in Luke chapter 19. Because the Lord Jesus Christ, when you meet him, he changes your whole life. He renews you from the inside out. He does something in you that kind of turns you upside down. And it's that gift of salvation, the gift of eternal life, the gift of new life in you working that he does. Luke chapter 19 is that story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. As Jesus was traveling and crowds were following him, Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector, wanted to see Jesus. But you know the story, he was small. He couldn't see over the crowds. And he was despised by the crowds because he was a tax collector. He was a swindler. He had defrauded so many people for his own personal benefit and gain. But he wants to see Jesus, and he goes to a sycamore tree, climbs up to see Jesus as Jesus passed by, and this amazing things happen in Luke 19, verse 5. Jesus comes to that place. He looks up at Zacchaeus and says, Zacchaeus, 
Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Obviously, Jesus has this man on his heart. He's doing something in this man's life. This man who's been a thief, who's been a swindler, who's been a defrauder. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. They despised that about Jesus, that he would associate with the lowly, with the low-down, the immoral, the ungodly. There Jesus is, nonetheless, because he has something to do with Zacchaeus that day. In verse 8, it says, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. When Jesus comes into your life, he changes you. Zacchaeus, having met Jesus, immediately begins to make right the wrongs. And you have to get this. Zacchaeus doing these things isn't what earns him salvation. It is the salvation that has come to his house that is now producing the fruit of repentance in his heart. Zacchaeus wants to give half to the poor. There's no standard about that. That's a morality that flows from love for God and love for neighbor that doesn't just seek to do the bare minimum, but now looks at people with a heart of love and wants to do what is good for them and seek their benefit. And not only that, he knows that he's defrauded people and he says, if they've defrauded anyone, I'll pay them back four times. Do you know what the legal requirement was for a situation like that? It's twofold. Zacchaeus isn't just trying to do the basic minimum of the law. He's changed by Jesus Christ and now has a heart of love, wanting to live that out in practical, everyday life. So as we hear Jesus speak on topics like this, we hear him say these amazing words that isn't calling people just to the basic minimum of the law. But like in Luke chapter 6, verses 27, and following, Jesus says this, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Hear what Jesus says. That's not the bare minimum of the law. He takes you above and beyond. He even leads you away from an exacting and vengeful attitude that would say to somebody who wronged you, you give back to me what is mine because God says to do it. Instead, he liberates us with love so that we can actually say to those who harm us, I forgive you. Here, let me bless you. He leads us beyond the basic requirements and into the true ethic that is only generated in our heart when the Spirit comes to dwell with us which leads us to a life of love. He leads us way beyond basic standards. So, brothers and sisters, ought we not to at least set our heights for that bare minimum, 
not with an exacting vengeance for those who wrong us, but for those who we've wronged, so that we might do what's right to them in the sight of God. And then when we're wronged, we have the heart of forgiveness and love that we can do what is right for them. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge to you that uh, your standards are always wise, good, and we fall so short. So we thank you for the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has made restitution on our behalf to reconcile us to you. Oh, what a payment you have made, Lord Jesus, on our behalf, one that we could never make for the wrong that we have done. And now we would ask that because of what you have done for us, saving us, that you would lead us to live this life of love, a life that really embodies what you have taught us, Lord. Get rid of a, in us any exacting nature that we have, any vengeance that we might have. And Lord, if we are complacent about making right things that we have done wrong, would you give us a, a diligence in seeking to make things right with those whom we have Thank you, Father, for your grace towards us. Help us as your people to represent you well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.